Welcome back, listeners, to this week's episode of If I Only Knew. Today, I'm here once again, as always, with my excellent co-host, Fred. Fred, do you want to say hi? Hi, guys. Hello, Matt. Good to be back. It's great to have you. Um, Today, I've brought a topic for Fred to discuss. He loves throwing random ones my way without very little notice, and so this time I've chucked one to him. And this is a topic about how do we actually make moral decisions? Now, it sounds like an unusual topic, I suppose, but I've been studying some philosophy at uni. I think it's really important to ask, like, what do we actually do to reach the right decision in our own heads? Um, Because there's these two schools of kind of general philosophical thought that have been around for a long, long time. Uh, And you guys might have heard about some of them. So one of them is consequentialism, which says that we should maximize good. We should do the most good. Now, there's a variety of different ways to understand what that means, but it's quite simple find the outcome that has the most good, do that action, right? Um, The other option, the competing view, is somewhat more complex, but it's not too much more difficult. It's a rights-based approach, and it says, well, yes, we want to do good, but some actions are prohibited from us because other people have rights that we must adhere to. So I can't kill one person to save five because they have a right to life, and to kill them will be to violate their right. So... These two decision-making matrices compete with one another as consequentialism tries to maximize good regardless and rights-based approaches try to account for like your interpersonal relationships with people, the rights they might have, something a a little bit more um, difficult to reach the best outcomes. Now, the reason I've been thinking about this is because I've traditionally thought of myself as more of a consequentialist. I've considered that, you know, you should just try to maximize good because when you maximize good, it makes people happy. It produces ultimately the most good outcomes. And that's the simplest and most straightforward way to conduct yourself morally. But I've been thinking a bit more about this and reflecting on the fact that when I actually make a moral decision, when I go ahead and decide how I'm going to act morally, I don't really always think just about the fact that it will maximize good. So if I keep a promise to a friend, I don't keep that promise because I'm thinking, hmm, yes, this will maximize the good for my friend. I keep that promise because I've made a promise to them. I've entered into a relationship with them that confers a duty onto me. And this has left me a little bit in the lurch about how we should make moral decisions because it's seems a bit more complex than I first thought. So that's the the introduction to this idea of moral decision-making. And Fred, you've got some thoughts on this, I think, don't you? Well, it's funny that you ask, Matt, because I haven't told you that I I am actually published in a book and did a thesis on ethical decision-making. Oh, exciting. I have not heard of this. So here's a question for you. Have you heard of the trolley problem? Because you've explained it already. Mm, I have heard of the trolley problem, yes. So for those that don't know, the trolley problem is essentially you are required to act in a scenario where five people are on one side of a train track, two people are on another, or three people are on another. There's a bystander and a rail switch. There's an out-of-control locomotive of some point, a trolley, a or a train and they ask people questions and the questions are to begin with quite simple you know if you have to choose do you choose the track that kills two people or the track that kills five Mm -hmm. what about if one of the people on the track of two mad is your mother yeah 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 what about and my mum didn't like my answer to that (laughs) what about the prospect of kicking the one bystander in front of 
the train trolley to stop all eight people or seven people dying. Mm. And, I, and I studied people's responses to this question. I learned a lot about ethics and morality in that conversation. And first thing I want to say to you is I think ethics and morality are separate. And when you talk about moral decision making, I have a question for you. Whose morals to which do you refer? Right. Yeah. So I, I suppose that that is one of the fundamental questions of what is morality. Um, I think that the, the moral decision making process that I'm referring to then is just to, what is it that you or I or people do in our heads when we reach yeah. a, a decision? So I suppose it's a very subjective process for sure. I just realized this is our goodwill hunting moment, Matt, yes. you know. Someone's frame, you know, that bar scene. He says, oh, but you've read this book and you've read that book and next year you'll read this book, but then you're going to read that book and be confused. Hey, you're like, them apples, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, I don't know who's who in the scenario, and that's a very old movie now. Have you seen Good Will Hunting? Absolutely not. See, again, people, I want it noted. This is what I'm <laughs> It's on recording. But, but we will say this. We will say in the work that you've done, as I understand what you're saying, there are two frameworks to consider. One is the greater good or actions that have consequences that are generally beneficial at a maximum level. Yeah. The other is maximizing good but respecting the rights of others. Yeah. Okay. And in your mind, as I heard you say, you started to understand that whilst you thought you would always do the thing that was for the greatest good possible, mm. as you started to realize that relationships matter, you're really towards the concept of, I'll do the best good I can while respecting the rights of others. Mm. Is that correct? Yes, at least in okay. some capacity, yes. Cool. I find this concept of decision-making really fascinating because I've worked with people that don't apply that logic. Yeah. And there's a generational question there because some might say that of a generation, your generation and the Gen Z that's coming through, there is a moral decision-making overlay that says what's best for me. Mm, mm, mm. So how do you respond to that? How do you respond or reconcile this idea of greater good versus respecting others, but I've always got to put it through what's best for me first? I think that it's an interesting uh, take on what moral decision-making actually looks like. A lot of people who write about morality say that morality is a universal project, that it doesn't matter who receives good or it doesn't matter who you're considering in your decision making, everyone should be treated equally. And I think that there's a very compelling ideas for, for why that should be the case. Just pause for a sec. I want to ask a question there. Mm -hmm. The school of thought says that morality mm -hmm. should be universal. Mm -hmm. Do you believe it is? Um, some of the underpinnings of philosophical readings that I've done describe morality as a universal and objective project, right? Yeah. So, and, and therefore, the goal of ethical philosophy is to try and identify a, a framework that understands a universal and objective morality. Yeah. I have found nothing convincing yet about either of those ideas necessarily. Certainly, it seems very difficult to claim morality should be an objective rather than subjective project, though that is a very complex debate. Uh, whether morality should be universal, I think that to achieve outcomes that I am generally okay with, morality needs to be a mostly universal project, but I think accounting for the relationships that you have with other people means that maybe doing good for your family has a slightly different moral spin than doing good for someone you have never met before in your life. And I think a universal moral project doesn't capture the slight difference, the slight differences that might come from repaying people's 
people with gratitude or yeah. keeping promises or whatever. So I do wonder if, uh, I think uh, I'm still questioning whether or not just how universal morality should be, but um, it seems to be at least a significant part of morality still. Yeah. I wonder if, and I've got a question for you and I don't have an answer, does our rule of law and government give us, at least here, a structure for morality? Mm. Ah, well, that's a very interesting question. From what I understand, the law is certainly not morality, which I'm sure is not a revolution. There are lawyers that are listening to this now that may fall off their chairs at that comment. Big disclaimer for those that just had their heads explode. We say thank you. Come, uh, come on our podcast and debate me, please. Abs- yeah, de- well, <laughs> catch cry, debate me. Um, <laughs> I am not Ben Shapiro. Please don't send hate comments in. Yeah, look, how effective is our system at facilitating that? The, the advantage of the law is that it can change and that allows it to keep up with the changes in ethical understandings and that's a very important thing but the changes in the law are quite slow often and so I suspect that the law often lags behind in, in, in mirroring our social understanding of what morality is and so I think that yeah it, it, it's a push and pull process um, that Yeah look I think fundamentally if somebody said can you wantonly take the life of another when you're in the bad mood <laughs> We would say, no, morally, that's not okay. And we have laws that enshrine that morality. There are, the big issue with law is that it doesn't always keep pace with what's in our heads at the time. And there's a big discussion about property and morality and those sorts of things, which I'll just be honest with you, is a whole series of podcasts, in my opinion, and not one I'm an expert on. But I think what you're talking about is and I'm going to use the word code, there are certain ways that we code decisions. Yes. And as you've gotten older, you realise the variables that require coding are very much personal from time to time. Yes, yes. So, yes, it would be really good if my family only lived in enough space, just the minimum amount of space we needed and any extra space was given to people that are perhaps homeless. Yeah. But we work hard to create a degree of luxury in our lives so that we can have the things we want. And that's probably morally reprehensible to somebody. A question for you is, is a framework enough? Is the pursuit of a framework enough or does it have to be definitive? And why does your framework have to be my framework? This is, this is I think, one of the key questions I've been grappling with when I've try, been trying to understand what moral decision-making is because obviously the decision-making process is different for everyone. And some of the, the writings that I've read about this seem to just assume that there's an intuitive decision-making process. And that doesn't yeah. seem to be correct the more we understand about how different people think the more we learn that there are different ways in which people reach decisions. But I've been thinking about how do I justify the study of my philosophy, Fred? You know, like how do I, I'm spending my the years of my life doing this, and what's the point? And I think the idea for me is that by interrogating the idea of how we might or should make moral decisions, I think we're put in a better place to um, shine a light on real world moral decision making and to ask is this a decision that I think is moral and can I explain why I think it's moral and how does this align with what a lot of other people think is moral and I think having that 
opportunity to reflect on like what are people actually doing in the real world is really quite important because there's a lot of what I would argue are quite immoral actions going on in the world. And some of them are also quite covertly immoral, like not quite so clearly immoral, but perhaps if we shine more of a light on them, we can see that there's actually something dubious going on here. And so I think that that's the advantage of investigating moral frameworks and moral decision making is it allows us to say, well, why does that action seem questionable or why is that action good? And and that process, I think, does have a value to it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny. When I started studying the concept of decision-making in general, there was a quote I read, and it was about the popular support for Adolf Hitler. Right. And one of the, the quotes was, you know, why did it happen? People want to know morally why this reprehensible thing happened. And the answer to that, the, the initial quote was, if you're starving and a man gives you a loaf of bread, you don't ask where it comes from. And that's a very different scenario. Obviously, post-World War I, Germany was devastated economically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not about war and it's not about Germany. It's not about any of those things. It's about the fact that there is a fundamental human condition and we have fundamental needs. Mm. And our morals can change based on those needs. If I'm starving... I will steal because ultimately I've got to do that thing to survive. There's a reason why self-defense in some instances is a viable defense against taking somebody else's life. Yes, yes. Okay. And I do believe that from a personal perspective, it might not say much about me, but as I've gotten older, I realize there are some aspects of my life where it's if it's me versus the other guy i've got to choose me every time mm, yeah but at the same time i would have been a, a, an environmental vandal in my teen years throwing plastic by the ton out car windows and so on and so forth and now i worry about the world my daughter yeah will inherit and i really worry about people's actions around sort of environmental things but ultimately what we're talking about with the concept of moral reasoning is by exploring it It's the old rule of um, orienteering. If you want to get from point A to point B, you need to know where point A is. Mm. And at some point, something's got to meet your code of ethics and things need to be excluded. Murder, theft, I despise thieves, but I have stolen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I despise violence, but I have fought. Mm. Not on any fantastic level, just Catholic schoolboy stuff. Yeah. Let me tell you about the trolley problem and my research that I found fantastic. Yeah. And uh, I want to shout out to my supervisor at the time who has since passed away, a lady by the name of Dr. Doris McElwain, who was one of the greatest teachers I ever had. What we wanted to know was how do psychopaths and narcissists make right. these moral decisions? Because essentially they are outliers in our population. So you have a speeding locomotive of some sort, an innocent bystander, a switch, five people on one track, two people on another. Matt, what decision do you think a psychopath makes? I think that the popular cult representation of psychopaths would say that they would maximise violence. But I'm not sure if that's necessarily true. I wonder if they might just watch. I don't know. Or push... I wonder if they might push the person in front of the trolley so that only one person gets hit by the trolley and everyone else 
Doug. And in, in that example, in your contemplation there, you actually catalogued through your moral decision-making. You said, if this is what I would do, what would the equal and opposite to me do? And it was fascinating to watch. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating to hear. The most likely answer for a psychopath is that they would simply walk away. Yes, I was thinking that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, why would you care about this scenario? You're not involved in it, yeah. So the trolley problem isn't about diagnosing psychopathy. Mm. It's about the idea that anybody doing that problem goes through some sort of moral dilemma. Yeah. Those that are incapable of empathy don't experience the dilemma and therein lies the power of the problem. Mm. Okay, so in our society, as long as you feel something right or wrong by my standards, you're still applying a moral reasoning. Yeah, it's those in society that apply no moral reasoning. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, and I suspect but don't know that we've romanticized those people as being Hannibal Lecter. Yes, exactly. you know, but the reality is, there's more of those people in boardrooms, mm. farmer bro that wants to take up the price of HIV prophylactic medicine, mm -hmm. right? That's a bigger moral yeah. crime than, uh, and I, I'm going to get this wrong and I apologise. I know listeners are our best researchers. I understand and believe the person that discovered the polio vaccine gave up all patent rights to that yeah. in order for it to proliferate so that we could, as a rule, remove the threat of polio. I've heard now, the same thing, yeah. So you, and I'm pretty sure I'm right, but in your moral reasoning, tell me about Mr. Polio vaccine, and I'm sorry I don't know his name, Matt will put mm. it in the comments, mm. I'm sure. Mm. What, what moral ground was he working on? Was he the good of the many respecting rights yeah. or the best maximum good possible? It's a great example for it. I think that's a really interesting to think about these two frameworks because it seems like you've got a you've got a duty to help people you've got a duty to do the most good um, and clearly it seems that maximizing the use of the polio vaccine maximizes good right so it seems like he's taken a very consequentialist framework to just say i want everyone to get the polio vaccine so whose duties has he ignored there well it seems like he might have actually ignored a duty to himself a duty to say I develop something and we seem to think we have a duty to like we, we have a um, a right to the sweat of our own brow is a phrase you might hear a bit right you have a right to your own hard work and you've talked a little bit about that and he has decided that well the wealth that I could gain from this discovery of mine and the right that I might have to that wealth is weaker than the responsibility I have to do good to everyone in the world that I can and so he's decided to forego that right to perhaps wealth and decided instead to say that, well, everyone should have access to this vaccine as quickly as they can. And it's pure science, right? It's mm. not about personal profit. Yeah. Now, I'd say to him, I love what you're doing. Yeah. Right? Maybe just do a deal where you get one cent from every dose. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? And make them cap a dose at 10 cents if that's what it can be made for. You'll still make billions, but you'll have solved polio, okay? That's kind of where I'm at. Like, dude, you got to look after you too, okay? And I've never met someone in my life that I could truly say was as selfless as the person that created the polio vaccine. Yeah. 
there are people I know that would say that is the biggest sucker in history. Yes. There are people that I know that say that person, because we are talking about him today, that individual will be talked about for centuries. Mm. Mm. And that's the reward. That's better than money. Yeah. You know? That's he lives on in perpetuity as this great humanitarian, probably one of the greatest humanitarians we'll ever know. Mm. Okay. Does more than feeding the homeless, which is the bigger reward. And for him, the bigger reward was just solving a medical issue that but was critical I in the world. In the moral decision making matrix that he undertook in that instance, perhaps, if that question of reward didn't have much weight in the making matrix that he that he did and so I, I think that that's an interesting idea as well like how does each individual yep. give weight to different considerations um and i think that it's very reasonable to say well one thing that people have for all of history valued is to have their name remembered because it's a it's a motivating yeah. force that we see throughout history but a consequentialist universal moral framework might suggest that well that's not all that important because that's just about your name and not about the good that you can do around the world and so perhaps this this person that invented this vaccine decided that that wasn't as important it didn't carry as much weight as the good that they could do and we can only speculate but i agree with you i don't think reward came into their moral compass at the time i think that they were so excited that they'd solved this puzzle yeah that they needed, they they did in a different time and in a different way, they resolved the biggest threat of their time. Mm, mm, mm. Fast forward to today, Pfizer posting billions of multi-billion dollars worth of product because they've just done the same thing in theory for COVID. Neither is wrong or right. Morally, could we say that he was more morally palatable than Pfizer is today? What do you reckon? Certainly, I think within a consequentialist framework he is and i personally think that there is something extremely noble about being able to self-sacrifice like this person has done to give up something that they could have had i think i accept the arguments that incentives are important that people need the opportunity to say i will make a profit from this to then go and do good work for society but i think that that only holds up to a certain degree I would argue. And so, like, maybe there's points at which, like, large pharmaceutical companies perhaps make more profit than incentive necessarily dictates, and that maybe there is something quite morally questionable about that. Well, there's a, there's a great, and I don't want to talk about pharmaceuticals because that's a... <laughs> a different podcast. <laughs> it's a very different podcast, but I will say this. There is a moral question about why an insulin dose in Australia is $8 and it's $1,500 in America. Indeed, indeed. Insulin is the classic question. Perhaps we should come back to that another time. That is a fantastic one. Now, I want to throw a curveball at you. Okay. I don't know if you're ready for this. So as a psychologist, I've had the benefit of working with people that don't reason in a conventional context. Yes, yes. And we're talking about moral codes, which are essentially based on, in a certain framework under certain conditions. So I want to talk to you about this concept of a young guy that was about your age, who I treated, who I will always remember this person. It was very formative in my journey as a psychologist. I won't mention names or anything. But picture somebody that, much like yourself, good family, really well put together, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, great gregarious skills and abilities but a diagnosis of schizophrenia so from time to time 
there would be actions that were very self-defeating. Mm-hmm. And because of an organic issue, mm-hmm. uh, there was no drug-induced psychosis and no trauma that we ever found. But I once asked them a question about why they did what they did. Mm. And this was the answer, and it was a pathway to very real challenge for me because a schizophrenic can apply a different style of reasoning to action. And it's the concept, you've heard of Sherlock Holmes and inductive reasoning, yes, Matt, you exactly. know? looking at facts and data to formulate a theory. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a concept called abductive reasoning where you suspend disbelief around some premise and it allows you to justify what you do. So here is the abductive question or the the pinnacle question that he asked me in trying to get me to understand why he did what he did. Mm -hmm. And the question was, what if God and the devil were not good and evil? Okay. What if instead that they were just two beings of power with great influence over the way we live our lives, they fought and one won and one lost. Hmm. And we chose to worship the winner? Is that the idea? Well, that was the spoil for the winner. Mm, Cool, cool. Mm -hmm. Can you, on some level, see the logic in that premise? Oh, certainly, because I think that the un- the often unaddressed premise in a lot of philosophy is that it is good to do good, and it is like it is good to make people feel good, and it is bad to make people feel bad. It is bad to murder. It is bad to thieve. It is bad to do something. But very rarely is that idea supported. Like, how do you justify that it's bad well, to steal? That it's bad to hurt? I'm glad you ask. Mm-hmm. So if there is no concept of good and evil Mm. and God and the devil are just simply beings of power that fought one, one and one loss. Then an angel is no more good or evil than a demon. And when the angel whispered in my ear and told me to hurt myself and hurt others, Mm. I was simply doing God's will. That discussion, which was that brief messed with me on a fundamental level. And I had to question the influence of religion, the influence of morality, how easy one premise could change all of a human's behavior and transgress effectively everything that we hold moral and true with a person that was acting on a very well-formed moral code but just influenced by what we might label as a perverse belief. Mm. Can I tell you, he's not the only one out there that has perverse beliefs that we interact with every day. Mm. Mm. And it's really interesting. And, and there is no doubt that this person had a mental health issue and heard from angels. But there have been times in our history where people that were heard by angels got the title saint yeah. and yeah. prophet. Yeah. And it's a really fascinating step into a real swamp around these concepts that we're talking about. What do you think of that? What do you make of that, mate? I think that that speaks a little bit to me about why we have ethics and morality in the first place. Like, where do they come from? Like, so clearly that is a foundational principle to 
that person's actions, right? And so if a foundational principle to my actions are maximizing the good, a foundational principle to what you've just described would be good and evil don't exist. They are in flux or intangible and therefore I will do what I'm told kind of thing in this case it sounds like. So if we're, if we're asking foundational principles of morality, well, one idea that comes out is like, why are humans moral, right? Why is there such a thing as morality for humans? Because it doesn't seem like we assess nature to have morality. When, when a house is destroyed by a hurricane, you don't say the hurricane was evil. You say there was a hurricane. Hurricanes do what they do. They blow houses down, right? But when a human burns a house down, you might describe that action as evil because that human acted. And so I think this question of like, why is morality a human domain is a very interesting question. And there are two ideas out of that for me. One of them is something that's probably somewhat intuitive, which is a like biological determinist argument that says that, well, morality comes from our nature as social beings. We feel a moral draw to certain actions as opposed to others because we've had to learn as a species to work with one another and morality has been the calling card for that and it says well a a destructive action like theft or murder or hurting people is an asocial action and so we've learned as a species that that is an immoral action and that that has stood in to stop us undermining our social tools for one another and it sounds to me like this person that you've just described doesn't have that same connection to the necessity of like social morality if our sense of morality were truly what they were describing there then i think that quite quickly our societies would not be able to rely on one another because you would not have a guiding principle by which people act you could argue people don't do that already that's an interesting discussion in and of itself i think the second idea of the importance of a foundational moral principle is that it seems to be extremely subjective. So I don't really like the biological determinist argument that we have morality because we are social beings and we learnt it through our history that it doesn't feel convincing to me because everyone has a different morality and it's, it seems like a, a difficult and abstract explanation for how we arrived at morality because... Is, is it really the case that morality is just a symptom of the fact that I have to work with you to, to provide food for, for people, Fred? I'm not sure that it is that the case. And so I, I wonder if there's something other than this biological determinist explanation for morality that speaks to how we have reached the fundamental morals that we have. Maybe it's grounded in history. Maybe it's grounded in relationships with people and this more of a feedback loop as I've grown up rather than my genetic history for the last two million years or whatever. And I wonder if maybe there you could argue that the person you've just described is out of sync with that kind of feedback loop that, that people have grown up in as they've um, gone through their developmental stages. You can see that I'm really struggling with this frame because this is a hell of a question. But I think that um, that scenario asks me to go back and ask, well, foundationally, where does our key moral frameworks come from and it sounds to me like that person stands as an outlier to 
the the typical process of moral development why I have no idea but that's where i'm at at the moment but but that's interesting and i think you've really got to the heart of it and this is kind of the last of what i have to say in that if i take the example of the psychopath that would walk away from a moral decision because mm. there is no payoff and i take the idea of abductive reasoning which is known to correlate with certain sorts of organic mental health issues. Mm. What we're saying is the outliers kind of really direct us to the formula. Mm. Yeah. My theory is, and I love humanity, right? I just think we're a really complex machine that I've spent uh, a long time studying. I think morality is tied in with the concept of fear and love. And I think all of those base emotions come from this idea of survival. Mm. Okay. If we turned our morality off and I flip it on its head, right? I'd love that you flag this topic. Let's look at the opposite. If everybody thought through abductive reasoning or everybody could walk away, we're talking about an extinction level event. Okay. So on some level, I believe hardwired into who we are is the capacity to think like this because we would need to survive as a species. Mm, yeah, yeah. Now, if I look at the animal kingdom, you would see that most animals only catch and kill and eat what they need. Mm, yes. They only take what they need. We have the capacity as an apex predator and do it every day to consume to a point where there is excess and waste. Yeah. So if we didn't have something limiting that capacity, we would have basically, the planet would be on fire, someone suggests already is. Mm -hmm. We would be dying in droves. Well, it's happening. It'd be apocalyptic. So I think on some level, the exceptions to the rule demonstrate that some sort of moral reasoning is the gift of our higher order evolution, Mm. as is the gift of love and the gift of relationship. And I don't think it is something conscious. If I was to to quote Carl Jung, Mm. in that collective unconscious, there is something that drives us to understand what's in our best interest, and that's how we define right and wrong. It's why people in landlocked countries are still afraid of sharks. <laughs> okay? All right? And it's why we can pick certain things to do knowing our gut feel is they will be right. Yes, okay? yes, yes. So I thank you for putting up this topic. I found it fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I love your take on it. I love how this exploration is, is really leading you to kind of question the human experience. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. I've really appreciated what you've brought to the table as someone who's talked to like a real variety of people because I think just reading like academic philosophy, it leaves a lot of the actual experience of moral decision making aside. And so I think that like hearing what you've had to say about how people actually might come to this decision making in quite extraneous circumstances is very interesting. Yes, I'm very glad we've had this discussion. This has been a fantastic one, Matt. Now, if you've got a comment about this episode or anything that we talk about, drop us a line. Obviously, the links are in our um, episode guide. We will be going towards, in the next couple of weeks, what I'd like to call a super fan episode. Matt and I are going to throw ourselves to the Lions people. We're going to get some super fans, some of our regular listeners from here and around the world, 
to jump on board and give us the topics and the questions they want to really see us struggle with. Mm. And I love the idea of that. I've already had a couple. Our free Britney episode came from a super fan. And continues to be very popular. Absolutely. And not a super fan that I would have expected, (laughs) but a very well-respected psychological peer that threw free Britney at us. So that's all from me this week. Thanks for having us, guys. Over to you, Matt. Thanks for listening, everyone. Much appreciated. I hope you learned something new. This was probably a more challenging one. I'm, I'm sorry if you were just looking for a, a chill walk in the sunshine uh, while listening to this one. I hope you found it interesting nonetheless. Cheers, everyone. We'll see you next week. See ya. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Better Pod Group production with special thanks to our researcher, Nicola Binks, executive producer, Matt Blanche, the providers of our theme song with credits that are in our bio, And of course, you, the listener. It's important to remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Whilst there are therapeutic themes discussed, in no way is the podcast considered treatment. And in the event you're in a psychological emergency, please reach out in whatever way you can through 000 or Lifeline 13 11 14. It's important to remember that the discussion is for entertainment purposes and the opinions voiced by podcast hosts are theirs and theirs alone. Any reference to copyright or copywritten material is of course the copyright of the copyright owner and or relevant corporate entities. Thank you for listening to Bed Pod Group Productions and tune in to some of our other excellent pod productions on this network.